In the past week, two of the Power 5 football conferences announced they would not be playing football this fall. This, after every college in the football championship subdivision, Division 2, Division 3, and NAIA postponed or outright canceled their fall sports calendars this year. For a look at why and what comes next, I went back to Richard Linklater's 1993 film, Dazed and Confused. The film, about a bunch of fictional Texas high schoolers navigating the last day of school in 1976, contains some social commentary that still stands the test of time more than a quarter century after its release, pertaining to many of the current intersectional inequalities we as Americans face, and which the COVID pandemic has drastically magnified. A group of soon-to-be senior girls attempts to name every past episode of Gilligan's Island, but when three of them depart for the restroom, one of them tells the others their discussion amounted to nothing more than implicit acceptance of crude gender stereotypes. Weren't thinking about it, were you? Gilligan's Island? It's what's known as a male pornographic fantasy. Think about it. You're basically alone on a desert island with two readily available women. One, a seductive goddess type. The other, a healthy girl-next-door type with a nice butt. So guys have it all, the Madonna and the whore. And when we get nothing, we get a geek, an overweight middle-aged guy, some nerdy scientific type. I mean, the professor is sexy. The professor, by the way, not sexy. But the point's been made about how men and women are judged differently by society. Men much more so by what they do, and women much more so by what they look like. As the bell rings on the final day of the school year, and the junior history class books it for the doors. Their teacher gives them one last piece of advice as the school year ends. This summer, when you're being inundated with all this American bicentennial 4th of July brouhaha, don't forget what you're celebrating. And that's the fact that a bunch of slave-owning, aristocratic white males didn't want to pay their taxes. I want to give a sarcastic thanks to those of you who care more about your bank balances and tax statements than anything else, and for your tacit responsibility for the ignorant, incoherent, and criminally inept responses Donald Trump and Mike Pence have had for the twin pandemics of COVID-19 and systemic racism. Oh, and while you were busy calling the virus a hoax and whining about wearing masks, the chances of fielding a college football season this fall have fallen by the wayside. Looked like we had it there for a while, but oh well. College football didn't have to be indefinitely postponed, but money clouded the eyes of those in charge of it, and rather than taking responsibility and taking the time to devise a real solution for a real problem, they instead drafted waivers for players to sign, so they, the universities, their athletic departments, the conferences, and the NCAA could abdicate all responsibility and liability in the event a player contracted COVID-19, and dozens already have, particularly at top-flight college football programs like LSU and Clemson. And well, imagine the possibilities. Player passes on to a family member, a fellow student, a professor, a coach, you name it. And we haven't yet contemplated the idea that even if a player had, and then managed to recover from the virus, their body might well have been ravaged to the point they could never play football again. And that might be a best case scenario. What's the worst case scenario? And that's the question I have. It's sort of like, is this all worth it? And as Chuck Todd suggested on a recent edition of his Chuck Toddcast, there may well be additional possibilities I haven't suggested or may not even have occurred to me. And here's where a 27-year-old movie turns the character Waterson, a leering Matthew McConaughey who talks about how great it is that even as he gets older, high school girls stay the same age into a prescient, forward-thinking, progressive philosopher. One of the main characters, incoming senior quarterback Randall Pink Floyd, spends the movie on the fence about signing a pledge his football buddies have already committed to and are pressing him to commit to as well. The pledge reads, quote, I voluntarily agree not to indulge in any alcohol, 
drugs, or engaged in any other activity that may in any way jeopardize the years of hard work that we as a team have committed to a championship season in 76, unquote. Wooderson takes one look at the sheet of paper and after considering using it as a joint to smoke pot on the high school football field, says in a stone drawl, the older you get, the more rules are to try to get you to follow. This 44-year-old fictional pledge and Wooderson's statement about its meaning applies to the 2020 college football season because the NCAA and major college football programs are leaning on their free labor to sign similar such pledges so they could thrust responsibility and liability onto their players for anything that might happen to them as a result of COVID-19. This morality struggle over whether Pink will sign over his summer and therefore his inherent right to start high school senioritis early is reflected in college football players' current, albeit much more serious, struggle with their own coaches, athletic directors, and college football administrators in their conferences and the NCAA, whether to sign over their bodies, health, physical, mental, and emotional well-being, and possibly even their lives in order to play the game they love. On this episode of Wrecking the Toy Department, where we won't just stick to sports because we don't have the privilege of doing so, we'll take a look at the possible end of college football as we know it and why that may not be such a bad thing. With two of the five power conferences, the Big Ten and Pac-12, having postponed their football seasons at least until 2021, college football is circling the drain. Maybe it's about time that happens. Because, as has been magnified by the pandemic and all that's come with it, the current system doesn't work. The amateur student-athlete model is both exploitative and structurally flawed. The game on the field allows college athletic departments to make money that they presumably spend to field teams in non-revenue-generating sports. The games on the field allow the NCAA, the conferences, and thereby the schools to make money from broadcast contracts and sponsored partnerships. And the television and radio broadcast companies make money from advertising and sponsorships. And presumably, the advertisers make money from the people who buy their products after watching the games. To attract the best athletes and coaches possible and better their national reputations to athletes and potential future students in general, these athletic departments and universities pour untold amounts of money into their facilities and the people they hire to coach their teams. It's the sports version of a nuclear arms race, spending and spending to get bigger and better faster than any other competitor. And it takes more money than these conferences and universities make off broadcast contracts to do that. So they take big-time money from big-time donors, and that kind of money doesn't come without strings attached. In the case of public universities, they're using your tax dollars to build their new stadiums, workout facilities, and pay their coaches seven-figure salaries, often making the head football coach, or in some cases men's basketball coaches, their state's highest-paid public employee. Who doesn't make any money from any of this? be it ticket sales, apparel sales, their likenesses in video games, broadcast money, donor money, and so on and so forth. It's the players themselves, without whom there would be no games. But what alternative do they have? They're not eligible for the NFL draft until they've been out of high school for three years. There are no minor leagues for football like there are for baseball or hockey or even basketball. There's no other place for college football players to sell their services, so they essentially become indentured servants until they can maybe turn professional, or their college eligibility runs out. Do colleges do this to their most brilliant musicians or scientists? If a music major composes and sells a symphony or top 40 hit, does that become the university's intellectual property? Can the student not sell their work without forfeiting their college eligibility? Can they not earn money playing professionally while remaining a student? 
no to all those questions because asking a music major to forfeit their education over selling their art is ridiculous. But when it comes to college sports, that's not how it works. The players are expected to treat their sport like it's their full-time job, a priority ahead of classwork, making money, or pretty much anything else. In 2013, then-Northwestern quarterback Kane Coulter led a push by college football players to form a union. In a visit to the Aspen Institute, he explained why he thought he and his fellow players needed union representation. Medical protection, not only for the current players, guaranteed medical protection, but uh, medical protection that extends past your eligibility. You know, a lot of these players are going to be dealing with you know, injuries you know, after their eligibility expires and they need to be taken care of. We'd like to see graduation rates across the country increase. Increased academic support uh, is definitely huge. Concussion reform, concussion prevention. Obviously, the NCAA and even high school has taken some major steps in, in those two realms, but you know, the NCAA hasn't, hasn't followed their footsteps, so we'd like to see some improvements there. In a 2014 interview with the New York Times, Coulter said he arrived at Northwestern with dreams of becoming an orthopedic surgeon. But he said that even before he started classes as a freshman, he was steered away from a chemistry class and toward less strenuous options like sociology and African history. Rather than the pre-med track he'd initially had his heart set on pursuing, Coulter left college with a psychology degree. Of his college football career, Coulter told the newspaper, quote, It's truly a job. There's no way around it. End quote. NCAA officials, conference officials, university officials, and football coaches, including Pat Fitzgerald, Coulter's head coach at Northwestern, all roundly opposed his efforts, which sadly never came to fruition. Might there have been some university administrators or even college presidents who sympathized with Coulter's cause? Maybe, but they don't have the power to overturn many of their coaches' decisions. Even athletic directors can be hard-pressed to pump the brakes on the decisions made by the coaches they hired. Why, you might ask, is this the situation? Well, there's a quote Tony Kornheiser always loves to use, one he attributes to the famed television producer Don Olmeyer, who once said, the answer to all of your questions is money. Who gives the universities, especially their athletic departments, the most money? The deepest pocketed donors. And who do these universities pay the most money to? Usually it's the head football coach. And we've seen where things have gone from there. How often when we talk about college football are we talking about something horrible? I mean, really deeply, darkly awful that's enabled because of our fealty to coaches and, and college football child rape at Penn State, massive cover-up of, of rapes and sexual assault run rampant at Baylor, a psychopathic assistant coach with multiple abuse cases being clasped tight by Urban Meyer at Ohio State, a kid dying while filming practice at Notre Dame, a kid dropping dead on the field because of, of malpractice at Maryland and then any other number of crimes all rolled into it. It just so often we're talking about things because of college football and allowed to happen. Because, and, and what recently, you know, two, two separate inquests showing racial discrimination and, and, and racial racist practices at, at Iowa. And it's just because of football. It's because of ingrained insular culture and the same coaches there for a long time, all because of dear old state or, or dear old you and what we what we allow to happen because college football becomes important. Essentially, college football has become too big to fail. And so too have college football coaches, given all the examples Dan Bernstein, midday host of Chicago's 670 The Score, just listed for us.
And the reason coaches think they can get away with these things now, like making their universities conference-free agents, as Nebraska head football coach Scott Frost recently suggested, is because they always have before. We want to play a Big Ten schedule. I hope that's what happens. Our university is committed to playing no matter what, no matter what that looks like and how, how that looks. We want to play no matter who it is or where it is. So we'll see how all those chips fall. Coaches have gone from, we're going to follow the science. We're going to do what the science says. We're going to trust the doctors too. My kids want to play. That's been the, the change of philosophy here. Yeah, they want to play. Absolutely. Everybody wants to play. And I respect that inclination, but let's make sure it's the right thing to do. If you want to cut these guys in on a share of the revenue and they want to sign up for it and play and assume the risk, Fine. That would be great. I love college football. I absolutely adore it. But it's morally bankrupt to do it if all of their all they're getting is tuition, room, and, and the coaches and the administrators and the bowl game officials become millionaires while these kids risk their health amidst a global pandemic. Feels fairly straightforward to me. So it's just so interesting. Like everyone's like, oh, listen to the kids. They want to play. They want to play football. And they know better than anyone else. That was Sports Illustrated reporter Pat Forty on the Tony Kornheiser Show. Chicago's 670 The Score afternoon co-host Danny Parkins and President Trump. There's a reason Trump and coaches like Frost and Ohio State's Ryan Day have been clamoring to play football in the midst of a pandemic, while glomming onto and purposely misconstruing the words, we want to play. They may well see the writing on the wall in terms of the future power balance between coach and player, or in Trump's case, his power white power, and the power of those who own and run businesses to freely exploit, abuse, and cow everyone else around them. At Colorado State, University President Joyce McConnell ordered an investigation of the school's athletic department based on an August 4th story published in the Coloradoan. The initial investigation revolved around allegations from athletes and athletic staff, accusing the department of trying to hide the extent of the spread of COVID-19 within the department. Shortly after it began, the investigation was expanded after the Coloradoan discovered through its reporting that players and staff said they had witnessed racial insensitivity and emotional and verbal abuse among coaches and athletic administrators. This resulted in an indefinite suspension of all football activities. Meanwhile, at Washington State, head football coach Nick Rolovich revealed his true fears and those of many of his coaching colleagues in a phone call with Cougars wide receiver Cassidy Woods, who was calling his coach to let him know why he didn't want to play this season. Woods told reporters he recorded the call because of his growing distrust over having to sign a liability waiver before participating in voluntary workouts, because he found out about his roommate's positive COVID-19 test from the roommate himself, while school and athletic officials remained silent, and because he was practicing on campus while students attended classes remotely. This, Woods said, left him unsure how the conversation was going to unfold. He wanted to have a record for his parents to hear. He later shared the tape with reporters. I just wanted to inform you that I would be opting out to playing in the season. I just wanted to you know, give you a heads up so you won't be called blindsided by it. But um, the reasoning behind it is just, you know, with concerns with my health, because as you, I'm pretty sure you probably don't know, first and foremost, I have sickle cell. So, and like with all this COVID stuff, it affects the respiratory system. And we really, really don't know much about the virus within itself. So I just don't, I feel like there's not enough, you know, in place for me to be safe, you know, and for sure that I would be able to play. So that's the main reason why I'm opting out. I got nothing wrong with that. That's why I told you guys, this, 
It's this line from Mulevich, which explains why Wood says he is now on the outs with his team, coaches, and athletic department. Wood served as the social chair of the recently formed Black Student Athlete Association and represented Washington State at the Black Student Athlete Summit in January at the University of Texas. He also joined fellow Pac-12 football players in a group called We Are United. They and a group of players led by, among others, Clemson quarterback Trevor Lawrence and Ohio State quarterback Justin Fields, have said they want to play, if the following demands are met. Health and safety protections protect all sports against COVID-19, allow players to opt out and respect their decision, and racial injustice in college sports and society. Economic freedom and equity use our voices to establish open communication and trust between players and officials not game referees, but college conference and NCAA officials, and ultimately create a College Football Players Association, which is another name for a union. And that is what has everyone involved in college athletics who's not a player running scared. Coaches in particular are seeing their once unquestioned authority start to diminish, and so are conference presidents and the powers that be at the NCAA. Why do you think these same people fought Kane Coulter's unionization efforts so vehemently seven years ago, so much so that they turned him into a pariah? Fast forward to 2020, and the players are finding out they're not going to suffer the same kind of blowback for speaking out. They are also seeing that the most prominent current activists of today, and the same was true of the civil rights struggles in the 1950s and 60s, are young. They have set an example that you don't have to wait to speak out if you have something important to say. In their pursuit of a union, the players demanding it have exhibited an admiral selflessness, because there are probably few of them who will be in college long enough to fight the battle for a union, and then accrue the benefits of being in one. Their fight is one for future generations of college athletes. They have given us a new lens through which to look at structural inequalities, be they workplace power imbalances or institutionalized racism, and they're proving themselves to be on the right side of history. On June 22nd, Mississippi State senior running back Kylan Hill tweeted, quote, Either change the flag or I won't be representing the state anymore, unquote. Asked about Hill's decision to speak out, Mississippi State head coach Mike Leach, not someone known for his progressive politics, told the Clarion Ledger, quote, I applaud Kylan's right to express his opinion, really, on any subject, end quote. 
Six days later, the Mississippi State Legislature officially passed a bill to permanently remove the Confederate battle emblem from the state flag. The symbol had been there for 126 years. The days of, you know, coach's absolute ruler are over. And if you can't figure that out, you're going to lose your job, Mike Gundy. You know, I think that this is a, a dynamic that's not going away soon. And the other thing is, if you're a coach, too, and you can justify a lot of the expenses and facilities that have been built because they're for the student-athletes. What's the one expense that's hard to justify? Paying a coach $9 million when the university's losing millions oh, yeah. and millions of dollars. Coaches might have their, their authority and their bank accounts hit here. Why, speaking on a recent episode of the Tony Kornheiser Show, did Sports Illustrated reporter Pat Forty specifically refer to Oklahoma State head football coach Mike Gundy? Back in June, a mere three weeks after George Floyd was killed by Minneapolis police officers, setting off Black Lives Matter protests worldwide. Gundy tweeted a photo of himself wearing an OAN t-shirt, something the network had sent him for free after Gundy made several social media posts expressing his appreciation for their programming. For the uninitiated, since it started seven years ago, OAN has trafficked mainly in right-wing conspiracy theories and racist propaganda, including, at the time of Gundy's t-shirt post, calling Black Lives Matter, quote, a farce, unquote. One of his players, Chuba Hubbard, retweeted the photo, writing, quote, I will not stand for this. This is completely insensitive to everything going on in society, and it's unacceptable. I will not be doing anything with Oklahoma State until things change, end quote. The following day, an odd, stilted video appeared online, and as 670 The Score's midday host Dan Bernstein commented then, shortly after this happened, the wrong person was apologizing. In light of today's tweet with the uh, t-shirt I was wearing, uh, I uh, I've met with uh, some players and... Uh, realize it's a very sensitive issue with what's going on uh, in today's society. And so we had a great meeting and uh, made aware of some things that uh, players feel like that can make our organization, our culture even better than it is here at Oklahoma State. And I'm looking forward to making some changes and it starts at the top with me and we got good days ahead. I'll start off by first saying that I went, wrong, I went about it the wrong way by tweeting. I'm not someone that, you know, has to you know, tweet something to make a change. I should have went to him as a man, and I'm, all, I'm more about action. So that was bad on my part. But from now on, we're going to focus on bringing change, and that's the most important thing. I don't know what happened to Chuba Hubbard, but first of all, he doesn't have to apologize for anything. Mike Gundy has yet to apologize. Chuba Hubbard did exactly the right thing by taking to Twitter the most powerful place he could, and his teammates had his back. I don't know what happened in there, but that video, if you want prima facie evidence of institutionalized racism, look at that video. Well, we had a meeting. I learned some things. There will be great days going forward. Here's the ball. Now run that way. It matters now what coaches think about the world. As far as I can tell, Gundy still hasn't apologized. At some point, he'll have to. However, until then, it doesn't take too much work to figure out where the Cro-Magnon, Neanderthal-like attitudes of coaches like Gundy come from. Just turn on Fox News and listen to former Notre Dame head football coach Lou Holtz. I think they should play, but then again, that's my thing. I think that you ought to say to the players, 
you want to play if you have a problem, if you have an asthma problem, if you're diabetic or something, and you have a legitimate, legitimate reason you don't want to play, absolutely, don't play. The rest of you want to play, let's go play. I think that we shut everything down for six months. I'm going crazy about being quarantined. I think other people are tired of Let's move on with our life. When they stormed Normandy, they knew that there were going to be cash and there's going to be risk. Two percent of the people that attend, they, they go to the uh, emergency room, go for COVID-19. Two percent of it is yeah. going down. But young people, Bill, they think it's like cancer. They think they're going to die. Lou Holtz is a, just a fantastic guy, a friend of mine. He's been a supporter from the beginning. There are no words for this other than Mr. Dinosaur and the president he supports are not the adults in the room. They are not listening to scientists. So where the heck are the adults? Oh, Breaking news from Dan Bernstein as producer Jay Zawoski. There are adults in the room who are actually listening to scientists. Dan, the it's- Ivy League canceled on July 8th. July 8th. Yeah, we can't do fall sport. This is uh, not good. Can't do it. Right? July but 8th. But in fairness, the Ivy League are not smart people. <laughs> but, I mean, but that, you know what? All, my point being, that's where the coaches don't run the schools because the money doesn't run the school. I mean, the money does run the school, just not sports money. When the schools aren't fueled by sports money, that's when they can just make a decision. Since that announcement from the Ivy League on July 8th, every team in the FCS, Division II, Division III, and NAIA have canceled their football seasons. In the FBS, a.k.a. college football as most people know it, the teams competing for a shot at the national championship every year, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, Mountain West, and MAC, have postponed their football seasons. College football reporter Pete Thamel reported on August 10th that that was the first time Big Ten officials met to discuss even the possibility that football might need to be postponed. This was Danny Parkins' reaction the next day. That is just such staggering incompetence. That shows such a disgusting dereliction of responsibilities, a lack of foresight, that they have no one to blame but themselves for not planning ahead in any sort of meaningful way. So that's why we're not going to get college football right now, because they didn't have a plan, and there's too big of a liability with unpaid amateur athletes going back into the Petri dish that is college campuses. I take no joy in saying that, but that's clearly where this story has been going for months now. So, for the Big Ten, and presumably the Pac-12 and Mountain West, their decisions to postpone football were about money. The possibility of how much could be lost through legal liability should COVID-19 rear its ugly head, and not science or responsibility for their stewardship of their players' athletic and academic careers that drove these conferences' decisions. That's what makes this logical, to the point of being dull, statement from Northern Illinois University Athletic Director Sean Frazier during a recent interview with morning hosts Mike Mulligan and David Haw in Chicago's 670 The Score all the more stunning and compelling. Doing what's right. The timing in which that we're talking about, the issues of uncertainty, the issues that we do not know about the long and short-term effects, the new information is coming out about the effect on the heart, the lungs. You know, these are all things that, quite frankly, you have to safeguard when you talk about permissible activities, right? We would do that regardless of COVID-19, and now we're talking about something that's extremely infectious, Something that, quite frankly, that we can test for, but as far as us able to stop a corral, we can't do that. And so th- those all went into that. So when uh, when the presidents got together and, and talked about that and talked about the data and, and, and drilled down further and our commissioner with his particular leadership has 
presented this, a decision was made. And uh, I firmly believe it's the right decision based on the lack of information (laughs) that we have around COVID and the uptick and spread that's currently going on right now. So, yeah, it's it's just a tough thing to take anything away from our, our young people relative to activity or competition. But to safeguard them, to do the right thing, is definitely a, a watershed moment. And uh, like my wife says, you know, um, adulting needed to happen relative to taking care of our young people. And uh, I, I stand by that. I wish such a Captain Obvious type statement weren't so rare in college football. But I guess that's because I still dare to dream. Oh, sorry about that. I was having a nightmare where the remaining major conferences that haven't yet postponed their football seasons actually go ahead and play, while at the same time reopening campus to their general student populations. Classes, parties, alcohol, not enough tests to go around, and long lags in test results coming back? Oh, and differing, fragmented attitudes and mandates about masks and social distancing coming from the top, as in the White House, and filtering down from there? Even though university campuses have pretty much been shuttered since mid-March, as of July 29th, there had been more than 6,600 cases nationwide connected to U.S. colleges, with 11 of them reporting more than 100 confirmed cases. Six of the top eight schools on that list, compiled by the New York Times, were in conferences that plan, as of August 16th, to play football this fall. I foresee no problems here. A lot of people think that the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are being snowflakes for not trying to play football at the same time that they're bringing literally 20 and 30,000 kids at a time back to campuses. I think the, the writing on the wall became pretty clear finally to the Michigans and the Ohio States that it's not feasible to try to play a football season when you're trying to reopen a campus. I mean, just look at one Georgia high school. And now imagine if something like that happens on your campus. That high school in Georgia that Washington Post sports columnist Sally Jenkins is referring to there on the Chuck Toddcast? Its principals suspend the student who took the photograph of hundreds of students, many of them maskless and closely packed together in the hallways between classes. Within a week of that photograph going viral on social media, nearly 1,200 Georgia school students, faculty, and staff were in self-quarantine with the virus. I know why Georgia schools have been reopened, because their idiot governor, Brian Kemp, is trying to curry favor with President Trump. But the reason behind some colleges and conferences doing everything in their power to play football this fall? It's so the powers that be can maintain a structurally unequal power balance between themselves and their free labor. The people who stand to make the most money off of these kids are asking them to not ask any questions. And I was told at a very, very young age, when it has to do with your health or your money, Please understand the people that are trying to make you feel uncomfortable. They're trying to make you feel uncomfortable for a reason. Never, never mince words when it comes to a few things, your health and your money. When the money is forcing you to make decisions that are detrimental to your health, I'm for an association, but I'm not for a union. What is that? What does that scream to you when Dabble Swinney says that? Or when when anybody says, well, you know, the Big Ten, they, they kind of chickened out a little bit early or Pac-12 players are, are getting on the phone with each other. You should listen to people who are worried. These kids are, are worried. And now that we're finding out the newer things about, like, the inflammation of the heart, how yep. this disease may scar the lungs going forward, what you're pretty much telling these children is, yo, somebody going to get it. It might as well be y'all because y'all healthy now. That was NBC Sports Chicago anchor Jason Goff on Chicago's 670 The Score speaking to midday host Lawrence Holmes. 
When people talk about systemic and institutionalized racism and classism and all the other obvious power imbalances and inequalities that exist in American society, college football is a perfect lens through which to understand what they're talking about. The power structure is built like this. At the top are the people with the most money. Advertisers, broadcasters, and big money donors. Next are the people making the most money. Head football coaches. Then come the symbolic voices of authority the NCAA, the conferences, the athletic directors, the university presidents, and where applicable, their boards of regents. Then there are the assistant coaches and the other athletic department staff. And finally, several tiers below them all are the players, without whom there would be no product to broadcast or sell. This power structure has maintained itself specifically because it was designed and built by the people in charge to most benefit the people in charge. The inequalities built into the system were put there and remain there, specifically for that reason. In this case, players forming a union in order to have a say about their working conditions as football players, to determine their academic careers as college students, to earn some money for their play, their images, their likenesses, that earn everyone else in the college football business a fortune in ticket sales, jersey sales, video game sales, radio and TV broadcast contracts, advertising sales, big money donations, and so on, would benefit the players but not the people currently making money off their free labor. It would not benefit the people in charge to change things, even if some of them are sympathetic to the players' demands. Enough of the people in charge have a stake in keeping their hold on the power and money that comes with it, that they will do anything and everything they can possibly do in order to hold on to their positions in the current power structure. And that is why it's so difficult to get the system of college football to change. The powers that be see change as a zero-sum game. If the players gain a foothold in saying how things should be, the coaches, athletic directors, and the like feel they stand to lose their authority, their enormous salaries, and the perks that come with them, and everything else that's been put into place to make them feel like kings. That is the definition of structural institutionalized inequality. And there are only two ways in which such inequalities can ultimately be resolved. Peaceful negotiations and some sort of reconciliation or the kind of revolution we're starting to see as players organize and begin a drive to unionize. This is proof positive the amateur student-athlete model is officially broken, and it's been in bad shape for years, if not decades. College football is a professional sport in everything but name and the players getting paid for their work. They should be. This is a job for them, with a stated importance from everyone on up the college athletics food chain that sports is, and should always be, a higher priority for them than academics or anything else. Having been a sports writer for so long, I laugh at the notion of student-athletes, as every reasonable person does. But in this case, it is just so clear, nobody ever talks about any of these people going to a single class. Not a single class. They don't even care if anybody else is on campus. They just want these kids to play football. Right? I mean, it, does this not show the professionalism of these kids? Of course. And, and last week when the Big Ten shut down, people wondered, what are they going to do? How about go to class? <laughs> well, yeah, they're not going to go to class. That's preposterous. They're going to maintain eligibility. They're not going to go to class. The entire current model of college football is, as Tony Kornheiser said in his recent podcast, preposterous. And the athletes have known that for a long time. But in the COVID era, they have found that their voices, leverage, and therefore their chances of success in appending the old power structure for a new one are exponentially better than they were before. As Wooderson put it to Pink in that fictional high school football mad town in Texas back in 1976, quote, The older you get, the more rules they're going to try to get you to follow, end quote. Especially when those rules benefit the rule makers not the people who are supposed to be following the rules in the first place. 
That's the conclusion Pink came to. After a night of partying with his friends, Pink is confronted by his coach the following morning because town police had alerted him that they had found his star QB drunk and smoking pot on his high school football field. After lecturing Pink about his hoodlum friends and telling him he's the one with something to lose if he keeps hanging out with, quote, those clowns, unquote, Coach Conrad says he's willing to wipe the slate clean if Pink gets his priorities straight and signs his commitment to his team. When Pink says he's still thinking about it, Coach Conrad thrusts his finger in Pink's face and tells him, quote, Nobody's paying you to think about it. Just do it. End quote. And that's the metaphor for college football. Everyone in the power structure above the players expects them to act like adults, but without giving them the free will to do so. And when the players inevitably try to exercise their free will, those above them treat them like a parent would a naughty child. Except now, college athletes are seeing through COVID-tinted lenses that they can set their own terms for playing football. Like Pink, they're pushing the ball back into their coach's athletic department's conferences and NCAA's court. After listening to his coach's lecture, Pink tells him his number one priority for the summer is getting Aerosmith tickets and, quote, I might play ball, but I will never sign this, end quote. Then he balls up his unsigned pledge and throws it through his coach's open truck window, as if to say, I've made my demands clear. What's your next move? Stunned and defeated, Coach Conrad drives off. Will the NCAA do likewise? Or will they listen to their players' demands and meet them at the negotiating table? We all know by now that the current college football model is a farce. So the question is, what comes next? I, for one, am rooting for the players. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, voiced, edited, and produced by me, Jake Williams, with some extraordinary voiceover work from my wonderful and talented wife, Miriam. Thank you, and I love you. Thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the following musical compositions. Welcome to the show, Sax Rock and Roll, and Chipper. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, tell a friend, and leave a review and rating on iTunes. Thank you for listening.